to continue this morning then with that uh, out of the way with our sermon series on the book of Acts. Let me push one more. But this is week two of the series. Uh, and asking that question, like, what was it like to be part of the early church? And, and maybe more importantly, what does it mean for being the church now, right? So it's one thing to think about historically where the church was, but there are some fundamental questions that I think all of us have to answer about the things that continue to endure for the church. And there's lots of conversations about what those things are and what they're not, right? So, so some of us think historically it happened then, but it doesn't happen now. Other people say, no, it happens now, still today, just like it happened then. And so we want to consider these things and consider them sincerely. Uh, I want to say something about the Bible. I, one of the things I think is funny is you always hear uh, churches these days say things like, uh, passionate, relevant preaching in the Bible. I just want to spoil something for you. Uh, the Bible's teaching is always relevant. It's always relevant. Even whenever you and I thought it wasn't relevant, it was relevant. <laughs> okay? I'm that guy who lived his life saying, the Bible doesn't matter. I was wrong. It's relevant. It's always relevant. And so uh, we want to then study the scriptures and consider what it might mean for our lives now, what this looks like. I want to uh, read Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 26. We left off last week, so we're going to read that, and then I want to pray, and we're going to talk about it together. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood among the believers in a group numbering about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there he fell headlong, his body burst open and his intestines spilling out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. Because, as Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place of apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so he was added to the eleven apostles. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that it never returns void, that always speaks truth to us, that indeed speaks truth when we don't even want to hear it from you, Father. I pray that today we want to hear it. 
we would be open to your truth, your revelation, that you would quicken our spirits to be obedient to your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to pay attention. And, and maybe today, you know, we're not feeling like we can even pay attention, but you're, by your divine power, we might hear you or learn what we must learn from you today. May we be changed and transformed by your power and by your Son and his gospel. We thank you so much for the gift you've given us of faith. We thank you for it. We do not deserve it. And we eagerly wait upon your teaching, Father. Would you teach us this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we left off the disciples. They were heading back into Jerusalem after the ascension at Mount Olive, right? At Mount Olive. And so they had seen these things and then they had, um, they had, uh, gone, gone back. Jesus told, told them two things. He said to wait for him to return and to wait. And so they, the, what we find this week is them living out their obedience. We started with that last week. We ended with it, them, you know, discipleship of obedience to God. And so, uh, we get right into some ministry realities, I guess I would say, right, with this text. So as soon as we get back, we begin to have some things that are laid out for us that the, the author wants us to know about what was happening in those days in Jerusalem. And the first thing it says is that they went back, when they arrived, they went to the upper room where they were staying, and then we get a list of people here, and I think this is fascinating. This is the first time there's an enumeration like this in the church. It's important to have an accounting of who's there and what was going on, it seems. And I've titled this first kind of idea, uh, Our Ministry is Unique. I want you to see the reality of the unique ministries uh, that are displayed here. It says that they were all present together, and it goes, all together they gathered, and it says, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, and Simon, and Judas. That's not the Judas, that Judas, right? And so, what I found really interesting was that there's, the way this actually reads is there's pairings in here, okay? And I think that's really fascinating that when we consider when we're called to ministry, we're rarely, I would almost say never, is that an overstatement? Called to do it alone. There's this tendency we have to do our own thing, and maybe you're not like that, but I have a tendency to do my own thing. And there's this reality modeled in Scripture that we're always to serve with someone. You know, Jesus, when he sent out the disciples, about two by two, right? That's famously happened. When he sent them out, he sent them out in groups. I can't remember where he said, you go do this by yourself, right? And what we find here in the text, which I think is really interesting, is that these actually, it doesn't read quite, I think it reads fine, I guess, in IV, but it's really set up in pairs. So what you have is you have Peter and John. It says they were all gathered together, Peter and John. And then it says they were gathered together, uh, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, which is kind of funny, I think, Bartholomew and Matthew. I don't know. I just think that's funny that those two. And then James, son of Alphaeus, and that's a reason that they begin to delineate which James. This is like Big John, Little John kind of idea. You ever had those guys in your family? Big John, Little John, same name. Don't want to confuse them. Um, so you have James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, not to be confused with Peter, they already mentioned, right? Petros, the rock, but Simon the Zealot, the one who who's fervent for the Lord. And 
Judas of James. Also, not to be confused, because you don't want to be confused with Judas. Scary, right? That's not what you want when you're following Jesus. And so you have these kind of pairings, so you go two, 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 three. Interestingly enough, that's how that seems to work out. Another way you can read it, though, I think is equally fascinating, is this. Peter and John and James and Andrew. That's four. That's kind of how the Greek reads. Philip and Thomas. That's two. Bartholomew and Matthew. That's two. James, Simon, and Judas. Not that one. <laughs> Those three. So there's this kind of structuring and there's this pairing of the ministries and they're serving together and they are, um, they're all unique. We have heard their stories. As a matter of fact, a fascinating thing to do if you want to spend some time in scripture is to go back and to reread the stories of these, how these ordinary people became disciples and apostles of the Lord. Because they all have unique stories. And it's fascinating to go back and go, oh, that's right, that's who those guys were. That's where they came from. That was their background. Because their ministries were unique. But, even with that being said, we have to notice that in verse, let me see here, 14, they were all in the unique <coughs> ministries, excuse me, joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, so even though they have unique ministries, they're still drawn together by the same passion. As a matter of fact, the, the way I like, the, the way I'd like to say this is, they were all steadfastly continuing with one passion in prayer. Like, no matter if their ministries were different, and their gifts were different, and their calls were different, and even their groupings were different, right? Like, they might have, that was my guy I hang out with all the time. He's the guy who Jesus sent me out with, or whatever it would have been, their history, right? But when they get there, they have the same passion, right? The same giftedness. I would even say that this is true for churches, that ministries are unique, but one thing that I'm starting to appreciate is that somehow the gospel is made complete by all the testimonies. We're united in one passion and in one fervent prayer. That's how we ought to be. I'm not saying we always are because we are sinners and we fail, but that's how we ought to be. United in prayer. I don't know if you've ever come to a place in your life where you weren't sure what to do. I, I wanted to say on this deal, like, if you come to a place you don't do, there's great advice from Jesus is to wait and pray, right? That's what we see here. He says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise. And they go back to Jerusalem and they pray fervently for the promise, right? That's the understated part of the text, or the unstated part of the text, that they are all together in one accord, passionately pursuing something. And based on what's going to happen next, we can assume it's very likely the Holy Spirit that God had promised to give his people. So there's a great model in that to say, well, if you don't do, wait and pray. But that's actually not biblically accurate, so I want to be honest with you. That's what they did, because they were told to do. So what I would like to say is, what we're called to do is obey and pray, Right? Like, if God's called you to do something, then do it and pray. But if God's called you to go and wait, then wait and pray. Like, whatever it is, the, the pleasing of God is in the obedience to what he's commanded. 
And here, in this case, they're doing what he said, which is they're waiting and they're praying. They're seeking the Lord. Much like Dale shared today, we go back to the source, back to the one who made the command. And so if you don't know what to do in your life, obey God and pray. That's what you should do in your life, right? It's important to point out also that there's about 120 people gathered here in the upper room. I don't know what you think of if you get imagery, but that's a lot of, there's a pretty big little group, right, of people. There's actually a funny ratio going on here that I'm curious about. There's 120 people in the upper room, and there were 12 apostles before Judas betrayed Jesus. And so, that's like a 1 to 10 ratio. So, I mean, there's lots of modeling happening here as far as grouping and being, you know, having someone to lead you. Uh, I can imagine a situation where they were each, you know, maybe had a group of people they were responsible for. These, these ten people. Now there's ten people unaccounted for. Who's going to shepherd these people? Who's going to do the apostolic ministry of discipleship that we've been given? And so that's interesting to me that there's 120 people gathered in the room. Okay. And then one more thing I want to say, and then we're going to move on to the main part of this message today. But it says they were all gathered together, the 120, about 120, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, with the women and with all his brothers, or with his brothers, Jesus' brothers. Remember, they didn't believe him. Remember, Jesus and Mary came, or Jesus' brothers and Mary came to get Jesus in his ministry and said, come home, you're crazy, right? But here they are after resurrection in the upper room with the apostles and the disciples. I want to mention, this is fascinating, this is the last time that Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up in the New Testament, as far as I know. The Gospels, Acts, like Acts 1, and then that, that's, that, then I was kind of stunned by that fact. I thought, as much as we think and talk about Mary, she doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, or even talked about anywhere else in the New Testament. So, I said that was interesting. But she's there. And she, she, she's there in the middle of this ministry that's happening with the apostles. Also with her sons, Jesus' brothers. All together in that place. Alright. So we know, we know that our ministry is unique and our opportunities that we have been given, um, are unique. In the middle of this then, Peter stands up and he, and he gives a speech, as Peter's want to do, right? He's always the first guy in, you know, like, he's always the guy jumping in. And we have a consistent testimony about his, his personality, I guess you would say. And it says that in the middle of this, he stood up. In those days, verse 15, uh, Peter stood up among the believers, or the brothers, the Adelphos. He stood up amongst the group of 120. He said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. He actually makes four points here in his talk to the apostles, to the disciples. He says that, um, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, that, this is words that we've heard Jesus say. Everything that had to happen was that scripture mu- must be fulfilled, right? So this shouldn't be something that... But Peter's catching it now. He's like starting to teach. This had to happen. Even the Judas thing had to happen to fulfill 
the scripture. And it's interesting that it says that Peter's confession is that the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. See, I said to you, there's many conversations about what's happening back then and what's happening now. But here's Peter in the now, talking about David in the then, and the Holy Spirit in the then, about something that just happened right now with one of the people amongst them, Judas. That's interesting to me, right? Because I think there's failure on both sides. You can think the Bible is completely about now and nothing else. You can think the Bible is about then and nothing else. But the truth is that God is bigger than now and then. You know what I mean? Like, he's bigger than that. He, he bridges these gaps with a story. And Peter interprets it that way. And Peter says, hey, look, the scripture had to be fulfilled back then that David talked about by the power of the Holy Spirit regarding Judas. So he's testifying that this is no mystery, what's happened here. But the second thing he says is that he says Judas served as a guide for those who betrayed Jesus. And, and we don't spend too much time thinking about Judas. I don't know if you do. Many people don't. But I think it's worth thinking about what it really means to have, um, have Judas amongst the apostles. Like, what, what, what is happening there? You know, like, and he was a guide uh, for those who betrayed Jesus. As, as a matter of fact, this word guide is used when Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of being blind guides. It's the same word. You're, you're, you're guiding people the wrong direction. You're, you're leading them the wrong way. And Peter's confession about Judas is he was the guy who was leading the people that were going to betray Jesus. He was going the wrong way. He was a guide to them. That's the second thing. So the first thing is that it's scripturally fulfilled. He makes four points. The second thing is that um, Judas was a guide. And then the third, perhaps the most shocking, is that Judas was one of us. Like, that's what it says right there. Judas was like us. He had a part in this ministry. Do you see what it says right there? At the end of that? He was one of our number, and he shared in our ministry. You see, it's so easy to externalize Judas, right? Like he, he. I mean, they had, you know, it's been said about what's recorded next is it shows that they had no lost love for Judas. But there's some admission here that Judas was just like us. He was part of this ministry. He had a portion of it. And that's a big deal. I can't think of anyone who sets out in their life to betray God. I can't believe that Judas, when he first heard and saw the Messiah, Jesus, set out to betray him. That was his goal in life. But there's a warning here, right? He was just like us. He had part of this ministry. He was one of us. But the scripture had to be fulfilled. Do you remember the story? Why are you going to betray me, Jesus said. Me? No, not me. Me? No way. And now they deal with reality <clears throat> that one of them has. Have you ever had somebody betray you like that? I think there's different kinds of betrayal, right? But if someone that betrays you and, you know, you kind of got like a, you're not really close with them, and so they betray you, like, oh, you know, that hurt a little bit, right? And there's kind of betrayal where maybe you have a disagreement with one person, and you guys have conflict all the time, and then you feel like, ah, oh, they betrayed me, but, but I knew they were going to betray me. But there's this kind of betrayal that you think, we're on the same team. This guy has got my back. We're in this together. 
You know what I mean? Like, this is a kind of betrayal that, like, you would assume that you're, you're working to the same goals and that if there's any way somebody's going to hurt you or harm you, it wouldn't be that person. You know what I mean? That, that's Judas's role here. Like, he's in the inner circle, right? We want to externalize it. It makes us feel safer. But he's in the middle. Have you ever had that experience? Of thinking that you're on a team and everybody agrees and everybody's doing the right things and all of a sudden you find out it's not true. You feel betrayed. What? I trusted you. I believed you. How could you? Maybe more important question is, what do you do with that then? How do you move on from there? You see, that's where we have a story of happening here today. How do the apostles move on from this tragedy? Because Jesus is raised and praise the Lord, and the Holy Spirit's come and praise the Lord, but they still have this lack. There were twelve, and one of us betrayed him. And they're grappling with that. I want to spend some time now talking about what uh, be- betraying God looks like, because it's a weird thing to kind of focus on, but I think it's worth um, spending our time on. Peter says it has to be fulfilled, the scripture has to be fulfilled, and he tells a story about what happens to Judas. I'm going to work my way backwards through this text, but then he says about the, in verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So those are two verses that he quotes from the Psalms where he says, this is about now. This is about what we should be doing, what has happened, what we should be doing. And so I want us to turn there um, to look at this. I'm going to push a couple here. Okay, so turn to Psalm 109 with me, if you would. This might be one of those moments that you're surprised at things that are recorded in the Bible. Many of us are surprised because we don't read, <laughs> read it. And I just want to talk through Psalm 109 with you. Because this is the, this is the Psalm that, that Simon, uh, that Peter quotes regarding Judas, right? But I want to start in verse 1. This is David writing the Psalm. O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they have surrounded me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. It's kind of the introduction, right? And you can hear that in David and what's going on in his life, like, you know, this kind of lament about being betrayed by a friend. But I want you to put in the context of the crucifixion of Jesus. Like, there's some key words, some key thoughts in here. As a matter of fact, you can even say the context of the disciples. It says that, uh, in return for my friendship, they have accused me. I mean, that's like the difference, right? Like, it's such a, a brutal betrayal. How do you do that? How is it possible? They pay me evil for good, and they give me hatred for my friendship. They just can't stand it. As much as I want to read that as David's writing, I can't help but think of Jesus on the cross. My enemies have surrounded me. Their mouths are against me. They've opened up. They've spoken lies about me. And now, listen to the prayer. So that's the setup, right? But listen to this prayer. Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. In verse 8, 
May his days be few, and may another take his place of leadership. See, that's what Peter's talking about when he says, we got to do something about Judas. This is a deep betrayal. It, God, and there's an accusation in that, right? Like, it's uncomfortable to read that, but the truth is that, that there's this desire that righteousness we made known. <laughs> you know, we have this tendency to uh, to think of um, Jesus without wrath. Is that fair to say? We have a tendency to think about Jesus on the cross, swooning and saying, "Oh, Father, forgive them; they don't know what they do." Which is true. He said it. But the truth is that as a man of God, a man of David, uh, uh, in the lineage of David, the throne inheritor, there's this truth that there's an absolute, deep, uh, abiding betrayal that's happening here. You read that. Appoint the enemy to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. That, that can be interpreted Satan. Let Satan stand at his right hand. Right? When he's tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. And it gets worse, right? So, I mean, this reality is that betraying God doesn't just affect the person who betrays God. It affects everyone around him. Because look what it says. Let someone else take his leadership. Listen to verse 9. May his children be fatherless and his wife be a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined Homes, isn't that crazy, right? Like, like, may there be big implications for this. This is a result of what it means to betray God. And the second thing is similar, but enough different. That I want to talk about it, and it's this idea uh, that betraying God um, ruins homes. You just heard that, right? Like, it's gonna, it's gonna mess up the household. It's gonna mess up the territory. It's gonna mess up the dwelling. All these implications. May, in verse 10, may his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all of his assets. May strangers steal the fruit of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. I mean, there's like some brutality here, right? Just don't even be pitiful for his kids. It's such a big, deep betrayal. May his descendants be cut off and their names blotted from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And may the sin of his mother never be blotted out. So there it is again, this idea that sin is affecting everyone around him. It's affecting the person, it's affecting the parents, it's affecting the kids, it's affecting the home. We have this, uh, this messed up idea um, that sin is a personal issue, right? And I think we believe it in some fundamental way because we're sinners. Because we're sinners and children of darkness in some way that we think that it's just me. It doesn't affect anyone else. It doesn't hurt anyone else. But the scriptures are saying that is not true. That, that, this, that these, these sins, these things that betray God, they, they have this huge implication for our lives and a huge implication for our children, huge implication for our parents. It just kind of, just starts with us and just works its way around into our family and we're in denial the whole time. We think it's just us. May, 15, may the sin, may the sins always remain before the Lord that he may cut off memory from them from all of the earth. Kind of 
That's tough. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to think about that. How much our sin affects other people. And then there's this last bit, which is the most obvious. But it's this, that sin, the betraying God, ultimately uh, destroys us. Here we go. It ultimately destroys us. In our moments of kind of, I don't know, misguided self-righteousness and all this, we end up destroying ourselves. Look at verse 16 in the psalm. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but he hounded to death the poor. Do you remember some conversations about that? I mean, it isn't interesting, like, um, Judas was the keeper of the money for the disciples, the apostles, and there was that time where it says, you give him something, and he's like, he's like, we, uh, the, the, the perfume was put out on Jesus' head, and he's like, you know how much I could have done for the poor? And in the moment, it seems so right. It seems so righteous. Like, like, that's a good thing. He, he killed the poor. He didn't, look at, for he never thought of doing a kindness to anyone. He only hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce curses on others. May it come on him. He found no pleasure in giving blessings. May those blessings now be far from him. He wore cursing on his garments. It entered into his body like water. Listen to the words. And into his bones like an oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers who have spoken evil of me, right? I mean, that's like destruction. That was just the second psalm he referenced. Now here's the first. It's Psalm 69. Let's see. There we go. 69, 19 through 29. It starts kind of the same way. It's got this little preamble. You know I am scorned and disgraced and ashamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comfort, and I had none. Now listen to the word. They put gall in my food, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. And then, that's the preamble. Now here goes the prayer. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. You heard what they said about I mean, it could have been 30 coins, right? Betraying Jesus for 30 coins. It could have been 30 coins, right? May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be forever bent. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. And then here's the verse that he quotes, Peter. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. Because they persecute those you wound and they talk about the pain of those that you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed among the righteous. And I want to read this one last. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. The cost of betraying God, the price and destruction of, of betraying God. These things are happening and they're happening in real time. And, uh, I don't know, like, how do you see your way through that? 
what's happening. Now I want to back up. We're going to make the Acts. We're going to end here in Acts. So this is what it's recorded then. Because I think it's gratuitous, but I think it's exactly right. In verse 18, Acts says, With the reward that Judas got for his wickedness, he bought a field. And there he fell headlong. See, he's ultimately destroyed. His body burst open, his intestines spilling out. Mass graphic language. And not only that, but everyone in Jerusalem heard about this place. That place was called a keldama, which is the field of blood. Like it was a place of scorn. No one would want that place. No one would want the place of betrayer. Judas is ultimately destroyed. This is the irony, I think, or I don't know if it's irony because it's too sad to be irony, but this is the sad truth, is that ultimately all of our neglect and hostility toward God and self-righteousness and covetedness, you know, I mean, all this stuff that we think we know better than God does, and it ultimately destroys us. Like, there's not strong enough language for how bad of a decision it is to betray God. But I know so many people who walk that line. There's something else happening in the scriptures here. Verse 21, Peter says, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. This is an amazing thing to me. That they're in this room and they're hanging out and they've known us the betrayal of Judas. But they're confessing that Jesus has been working the entire time among them. This is something that I caught whenever I was prepping for this week and I was just blown away by it. It says this, about the candidates who were qualified to replace Judas. It says, we need someone who's been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So these are people who were there the entire ministry of Jesus. More than that, beginning with John's baptism for in the time when Jesus was taken up from us. Like, so from John being in the wilderness saying, make straight ways of the Lord. Like we need someone who was alive then to know about John's testimony and now who had seen Jesus ascended with us and also to be, what does it say, one, another witness with us of his resurrection. And someone who's seen Jesus raised from the dead. And, I, and I'm amazed that they had candidates for that. Because we have this model where we read in the Bible where everyone betrayed him and all this and uh, left him, but there were people who were still in the room that they could say, no, you were there the whole time. So they nominated two people. The truth is that Jesus is working the entire time. As a matter of fact, I can't help but mention, in talking of Judas, that Jesus looked at him and said, what you must do, do quickly. Right? He wasn't caught unaware. But Judas was on this path of destruction that ultimately led to his own demise. Lead to his own demise. But Jesus was there the entire time. When he came and went, when he, when he uh, um, ascended at the Last Supper and his resurrection, he's teaching. So they decide to select someone. Let's see what it says here. Beginning with John Baptist, for us must become witnesses. Verse 23, so they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed this. I love the prayer. Lord, you know everyone's heart. You show us which of these two that you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. So there's the prayer. 
They wanted someone to take over the apostolic ministry and to, uh, to, to be an apostle and to be part of the ministry. God, you choose the replacement. Like, there's a pretty, uh, scary, interesting thing there about obedience. If we won't do what God has called us to do, it will ultimately destroy us anyway, and someone else will do it. Is that fair? I mean, is that fair to say? I'm not saying is that fair to us, because I'm not really fair to us. I mean, is that fair to Scripture? Is that what happened? That Judas wouldn't do what he was called to do, and so he was disobedient, and in that way, Matthias gets his spot. I love, too, that they're looking for someone to be part of the ministry and the apostle to the Lord, and they say, but God, you choose. What is a confession? You know every person's heart. Like, they know that fundamentally this is a heart issue, and God, you've got to be the one to pick. You've got to be the one. And they just ask God to do that work. And then they cast lots, and the lot falls to Matthias. There's a whole thing there, too, I won't get into today. Because I want to end with one final thought from this. It comes in verse 25. It says, To take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Now that might sound like a little bit of he, he, he got his, right? But that is not what is being said there exactly. It's more like to take over the ministry from which Judas boldly overstepped to make his own way to his own individual place. That's literally how that translates. He stepped over the line to go his own way to his own place. We need someone to replace him. There's a fundamental question that's being asked here of the apostles and disciples, and it's this. Are we going to go our way or God's way? Are we, are we going to go... And this is true for any person has a choice to make. Are you going to go your way or God's way? And don't mishear like me saying, oh, is it Bill's way or my way? Or is it the church's way or my way? Or is it, you know, Christian way or my way? I mean, is it God's way or your way in your life? Because as terrifying as it is to read the implications for Judas, how many people are walking in that very same position today? And indeed, in our own lives, as we, as we know Jesus, see, that's the thing. He was one of us. If we know Jesus. We go, if anyone's going to obey Jesus, it should be us. Are we going to obey him? Are we going to go to our own way, overstepping, going to our own place. I, I mean, it's one of those things that like when you ask the question, it should be a non-starter. What do you want to do? The, obvious is, the answer is obvious. Like, of course God's way. Everyone's going to say God's way, right? But is everyone going to do that? Are you going to commit your life to following Jesus Christ? Like, are you going to commit your life to believing that God is real? Are you going to commit your life to actually praying and seeking the Lord? One path leads to eternal life and the other to absolute destruction. I'm going to pray. I know where you are. And, uh, but man, this, this path, this choice is laid out, like, it's laid out for all of us. Prayer is that we would choose Jesus, really, in our lives. Pray with me if you would. Father God, um,
I just want to confess how many times that we don't take you seriously. And we act as if the gospel is all about us and uh, your, your way forward is optional. We can take it or leave it. We can do it when we feel like it. And Father, I confess that we are broken sinners and that is a lie. That the only path to life is through you. Father, for the folks who are here today who may be walking that line, I mean, I remember, Father, and I know my own simple heart that there's still a tendency to do that, to betray you, that, that they would be drawn near by the quickening of your Holy Spirit, that we would be drawn near to obedience to the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would not stand as those accursed as your enemies, Father, cut off from you for all time, but we would be with you forever and that our life would be a life of more obedience to you. Father, I, I uh, have no interest in telling your people what to do. I have great interest in all of us doing what you tell us to do. Would you help us to discern those things in our lives today? Would you help us to find the ways forward that we really need to commit to? Would you help us um, to grow and to become more the way you made us to be. Father, help us overcome the fear that we're leaving something greater behind to grab the thing that we you know, don't deserve, which is Jesus. I mean, help us to defeat that lie in our mind that we're leaving better things, that we're going to better things is the truth. Help us to know that truth today. In our lives, in a very real way, as your disciples, as those who believe that we're part of this ministry that you've been working out for 2,000 years, I pray that you would um, call, show us our unique call and call us those unique places where we can serve you and glorify your name. We love you so much. We thank you for the time in your word, the power, um, the conviction in your holiness and your great goodness to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.